How would you like to get the meeting started with a uh, calling, call the meeting to order and a roll call? Uh, okay, I call the meeting to order. Um, how do you do roll call? Do I just call people's names? Correct. Uh, okay, Ben? Hi, here. Steven? Here. Stanley? Here. Sarah? Here. Kathy's here. Uh, and it looks like maybe Kate Johnson is here. I'm here. And for some reason, I can't get my video to start. I don't know. Do you guys have it blocked? Guess not. I see Nancy. <laughs> I don't know why my video is not working right now. Well, there you are, Nancy. Okay, uh, Nancy? Yes? Uh, I'm just calling roll call, sorry. Um, okay, and so then what do I do now, Kathy? I'm really sorry, you guys. I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not good at this yet. I will get better, I promise. I have a little bit of information to go over, Kira. Um, so uh, first, good evening, everyone. I just wanted to share a few housekeeping items for tonight's Zoom meeting. This meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you are not speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. All board members, please keep your video on, those that have video. Um, all others can keep your video off unless you are participating during the meeting. If you have any trouble, you can send me a chat. All board members, oh, I'm sorry. Um, the city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize distractions during the meeting. Please remember to state your name each time you speak for the benefit of those participating remotely. And just a reminder, uh, the meeting ends at uh, 7.15 because there's another advisory board meeting that will get started at 7.30 at, uh, over here with the city commission and on the city's YouTube channel. Now I'll um, turn it back to Kira. Okay, so we had some, you said we had some administrative stuff that we needed to talk about. Yes, and uh, this is Kathy Richardson, the Interim Sustainability Director. The first item on the agenda is SAB administration, the hybrid board meetings starting in April. Um, Kira and Stanley and I um, had a conversation earlier this week about when we could um, meet in person again uh, with still having the option for somebody to join via Zoom. And um, the city is uh, transitioning its boards and commissions to in person with the hybrid of still some online capability starting in April. So the April meeting if it sounds good to the board, we would go back to meeting in the conference room at the Parks and Rec office on Massachusetts Street. Does that sound good for everybody? 
Yes. Okay. Um, again, this is Kathy Richardson, Interim Sustainability Director. The next item on the agenda is the subcommittee reports. Um, the first one is to receive an update on the Noxious Weeds Ordinance. Ben? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, so the subcommittee um, that was tasked with this uh, included myself as chair and uh, Kira Pearson and Sarah Chenoweth. Uh, we've had other people from the, Sarah's not a grad. We've had other people from uh, the community contribute uh, as well, including um, Michael Allman, Don Hawkins, uh, Courtney Masterson, uh, Teresa Wilkie, uh, and Karen Pagel Miners. And, and Kathy came to a couple of our recent meetings and was very helpful. So I'm going to, if I can share my screen here. I made a little presentation. See how good it is. Can you all see that presentation? Excellent. Thank you. Let's see if I can make it. There we go. So the existing ordinance that we have, I don't know how much of this is hidden by my little screen guy. The existing ordinance that we have comes from chapter 18 of the city ordinances, and we're focused on article three, which is about weeds in the existing code. Based on what I can read from it, it appears that this portion of the city code may not have been revised since 1979. That's a long time. That's 43 years ago. And so the rationale for the revision was twofold. The first, here's what the code looks like for any that haven't seen it. Um, the first rationale was because uh, as many citizens brought to SAB for the Sustainability Advisory Board, the weed list was extensive and included um, many native species and many, many species beyond those that are identified by the state and county as being noxious. So that was the starting impetus for the revision. As we started to do that, we um, another key element of the, the ordinance that came up was that the de declaration of noxious condition included basically any plants that uh, attained excessive growth. Those were noxious. And so any kind of native sustainable landscaping would be at a height that would be considered excessive and thus would be considered noxious. And the only way that you could grow them was if you got an exemption that was provided by city commission. So an, a key element that we've tried to push forward as well as revising the list was also to um, promote native sustainable landscaping rather than simply allow it by this complex exemption. So we're here on the Sustainability Advisory Board. I think that the people tuning in are likely to already be convinced, but if you need some convincing about why sustainable native landscaping and green infrastructure, um, it has a greater ability to be uh, adaptable and resilient to climate. That includes things like um, uh, weather, extreme weather events to be adapted um, to uh, stormwater events and to help mitigate those for our systems. Um, health benefits include things like um, being able to pull out pollutants out of the soil, but also um, the, many of the sustainable landscaping things use less inputs, which can help prevent them from getting in our waterways. There are economic benefits, for example, the creation of green jobs. Those are the jobs that would be necessary to install and maintain green infrastructure, which are often considered that missing middle kind of job where you don't necessarily need a college degree to do them, but they pay quite a bit more than minimum wage. Um, there are also transportation benefits, for example, stopping road flooding 
um, or else using green infrastructure to provide um, clear sections for um, biking and walking alongside roads. So that was kind of a key thing that we wanted to do, but um, we've tried to align that as best we could with some of the key strategic um, plan initiatives by the city and also some of the 2040 goals. And three of the ones that we focused in on, and when we look carefully at what they outline, are strong and welcoming neighborhoods, connected city and prosperity and economic security. And at Kathy's suggestion, which was an excellent one, we went in and looked at the actual progress indicators that the city staff are using to evaluate how we're doing on these goals and tried to link uh, what we're trying to change here with those progress. So for example, under Connected City, one of the progress indicators is to increase predictability in stormwater discharge. And we hope that by promoting sustainable landscaping that we can help do that and affect that progress. So um, we've tried to streamline the noxious weeds uh, that are needed to be controlled and to still um, create a mechanism to manage unmanaged growth. So we've aligned the noxious weed list to the state and county list. So things like leafy spurge here at the top and Johnson grass are still considered weeds. Control is required of all of those. If you can't eliminate them, then they have to be kept below reproductive height. And one novel thing we've done is create a plant, uh, it suggests the creation of a plant assessment board, which would be made up of city staff like parks and horticulturalists, um, um, scientists from the Kansas Biological Survey, representatives of the uh, community, um, and uh, also interested parties that could help revise the list if it needed to, because biological invasions are dynamic, but also to help provide support for exemptions and evaluation that wouldn't necessarily have to go to city commission. But just as always, any unmanaged growth, so this is not in any way, this is just people not cutting or abandoned properties would be limited to, um, to 12 inches and uh, city could still evaluate that and um, fine and violate people. We'll talk about second fine and violate based on the so as we move from providing by exemption to actually promoting sustainable native landscapes, we're talking about a huge uh, diversity of different kinds of sustainable landscaping, which mean things like urban agriculture, permaculture, xeriscaping, uh, and native landscaping. And so for example, uh, the ordinance calls that at least 50% of the plants uh, that are put in in these sustainable landscapes need to be native. None of them can be noxious. Uh, about 20% of the uh, Sorry, this says, oh yeah, the, the permeable surface uh, needs to be managed as a sustainable landscape unless there's exempted. Uh, you would need to provide appropriate maintenance. So at least once a year, it would need to be cut or burned if it's native landscape. If it's urban agriculture, um, you would need to take it down after the harvest. Uh, and that we would have setbacks from adjacent properties. And we've just had some recent discussions with city staff and among ourselves, but we want these to harmonize with the other setback codes for the city which actually vary quite a bit from, from eight feet to three feet. Um, but at, right now we're thinking about ones that will help um, reduce you know, conflict with neighbors of things falling over, but also the potential for um, living um, fences and things like that, like uh, shrubs. Another element is uh, to promote that is that the city should prioritize the use of native plants in all of the newly developed city areas you can see here on the right, um, here's some native landscaping that's been put in 
around parking lots, the city should be prioritizing and, and in, in fact using native uh, plant species to do these things as often as possible, not least of which because it helps with things like stormwater management and reduces maintenance costs. For all newly developed private areas, the city should require set percentage. We're talking about now 50% of the area to be native or sustainably landscaped. And um, there's a host of exemptions based on things like uh, rights of way, cemeteries, um, golf courses, food plants. Um, the third thing we've done is try to modify the abatement or the enforcement procedures. So we would create an arbitration process for uh, dispute resolution when um, the property owner disagrees there's a violation. We've lengthened the time uh, for the abatement from 10 to 14 days because of the time that it takes to do some of these things. Um, they're going to provide the owner with clear details on the violation and the processes for appeal. And we've tried to create a progressive fine system for a violation so that it's not just a flat fee, but instead that the fine would be based on a set percentage, uh, for example, based on their Kansas income tax. But as before, if the responsible party doesn't abate the violation and the, the judicial, the um, arbitration procedure um, says that there's still a violation, then uh, the city would abate it and charge the property owner for those costs. So just lastly, uh, we're still working on some of the elements. If you all were able to read the ordinance, uh, some of the important ones I think are, I'm trying to link these sustainable landscaping with the city's stormwater management plan and ongoing revisions to the city development code. They definitely directly impact those two things. And so um, we're gonna talk with Caitlin Dix, who's gonna present later here, um, who's working on the stormwater management code and we're trying to get in touch with those that are working on the city development code. We would like to include chemical trespass uh, within this ordinance that basically the property owners are responsible for the use of pesticides on their properties that wind up impacting adjacent properties. Um, we had discussions with two people in city staff and it seemed like a challenge, but we still wanna um, find a way that people can be responsible for those things in this ordinance or at least through others. We're waiting for feedback from city attorneys on the arbitration process that I talked about, the idea of a progressive fine system, which as far as we understand, hasn't happened in the city code yet, and the right of a property owner to know their accuser if it's not the city. If so, if someone reports them that um, the, the property owner would have the ability to, to know who that was and to, to, to think about that in the arbitration process. And then finally, we're hopeful, and you all saw it in there, that we can whoop, sorry, create a cost share program. There's several in Kansas already, including in KCK, um, in um, Johnson County, and also in Wichita, to help homeowners and developers uh, defray front costs. The maintenance costs, of course, are, are quite a bit lower than, than in other cases. Um, but there, this is just an example of one. So for example, in Overland Park, um, there's a stormwater cost share and one of the elements of that uh, you can see here is the creation of rain or pollinator gardens and Overland Park would cover, will cover 50% of the creation of these um, native landscaping gardens up to $1,000. So we don't necessarily have a mechanism for that yet, but again, this would be trying to, on the sustainable landscaping side, promote um, those activities for private and public land development within our city rather than simply allowing it for private landowners by exemption. So that's all I got. Thanks, Ben, that was awesome. Um, I also wanna thank you because you kind of 
everybody has really, a lot of people have helped with this, but Ben especially has put in a ton of work. I really appreciate that. And I know the board does too. Thanks, Ben. Um, what do I do now, Kathy? I have a question before we go on mm -hmm. uh, to Ben. I've been involved with these uh, local weed ordinances before. Do you, what is the motivation by, um, I mean, by the way, it, you did do a, an excellent job. So, and I'm sorry, I can't, for some reason, I can't access my camera. I don't know what's wrong with it, but um, I do appreciate all the hard work you guys have done. And, but what is the motivation behind having the accuser be revealed? Because it's a little different in a neighborhood issue, uh, but a lot of times you can drive along the street not knowing who owns that property and turn in some, some overgrown property. Um, in other places, you don't have to you know, have the discussion of who is reporting the issue. And, and because it's so obvious to people just driving on the road, um, you know, may not be a neighbor, may not be mostly, usually sometimes you don't even know who owns that property. It's just that it's very overgrown. And usually these types of ordinances are complaint driven anyway. So the cities usually don't have time to drive around the road, the streets and say, oh, we need to write that person up. Sometimes they do, but um, but my question is, um, why are you doing, why are you putting that particular part in? Yeah, this is Ben Sykes, SAB board member. So um, I, I'm certain that I won't accurately reflect all of the different opinions on the subcommittee about why to include that. But I think one of them is generally we were um, some of the people within the subcommittee felt that strongly that just like with other kinds of um, civil issues, right, other kinds of um, challenges to those things that you should be able to um, understand where the complaints coming from and and why um, why that might have happened. Uh, but I, I agree with you, the city Ultimately, the city will take responsibility whether or not the um, the actual person that made the complaint is known or not. The city has to take responsibility for defending um, the violation in any kind of arbitration dispute or whatever. So, um, but it seems to me that in discussions with city staff, that the vast majority, probably more than seventy five percent of the things that they deal with are um, unmanaged growth from um, properties that basically people aren't keeping up. And in fact, some of the changes in the fine system were because some people within the city were using basically this city unmanaged growth control to get um, their lawns cut because the fine was only $25. So people were just not cutting their lawn and then the city was was dealing with the unmanaged it was growth. so inexpensive. Yeah, I yeah. don't know so all of the history with Lawrence, but it I, to me, it, it's a little bit more uh, problematic than um, 
than a neighborhood dispute, than a neighbor to neighbor dispute, because you can see, anybody can see that, you know, when it's two foot tall, that it should be cut. And other places don't require that for the tall grass and weeds ordinance type thing but almost everything else they do. So I, you know, I understand that, but I'm, I was just wondering if there was a particular reason because it does discourage uh, people from doing it, from turning yeah, in. I think that's a good point. And I, I think it's something that, we, again, we've got city legal may come back and say that that's not feasible anyways. But um, I think there are definitely people that want to understand when the, yeah, the particular accusation or whatever against them has basis in. So what you said, Kay, is really important, right? We're moving from a system where it's really obvious if there's a violation because your plants are tall to a system where there are a bunch of systems now where you can have plants that are over 12 inches tall as long as it's managed growth, right, in some kind of a sustainable landscaping system. But I, I, I think that what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And, and I'm, I definitely can discuss that with the other subcommittee members and when we talk with city staff. Thank you. Um, and I'm sorry, I didn't say Kay Johnson, I'm the, a SAB board member. Um, but I, you know, it's not a deal breaker for me at all, but I'm just saying that um, that's something that you should consider and if people are going to the longer, the taller, um, sustainable landscaping. In some places, people put a little sign that says that so that people aren't calling on that uh, house owner or property owner to cut their lawn. You know, uh, I, I just think, you know, trying to think the process through you want to discourage people from just calling and calling and calling um, and you don't want harassment going on, but you don't want a situation where a person is afraid to call about a situation. That's a good point. And, and city staff did raise that element, uh, you know, that kind of personal intimidation -y kind of thing, right, where you're worried about it. But I agree, and we had talked about as well the issue of signage. That would say, first of all, it promotes because people can say, look at my sign, right. doing sustainable landscaping. But also it can reduce city staff time to worry about that property because when exactly. they see that, they don't have to worry about those things. So, yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah. know if I'm supposed to call people, but I'm happy to stand. You have your hand up, and then Steve, have some. Thanks, Ben. This is Stan Rasmussen, SAB member. But ben, I, I read through some of this and the, the requirement that you have to have 50% coverage in native vegetation for new development seems like a lot to me. Maybe it's not. But then the definition of native vegetation to me is kind of a concern. And the reason I say that is because <clears throat> this is native plant species or any plants occurring naturally 
within the municipality or the Midwest or North America. Sounds like that's a possible change there and not introduced by man in indigenous. So for example, I have a prairie fire crab apple tree in my yard and I planted that specifically because it holds the fruit in the winter, which helps feed the birds in the winter. But it's a man-made hybrid tree, a Jonathan apple tree. Basically any apple tree that we're gonna get food off of is not a native apple tree. It's a, you know, it's some sort of hybrid that people have cultivated over the years. And so I worry about this definition excluding beneficial trees, beneficial for birds, beneficial for bees, beneficial for human food consumption. So I'm a little concerned about that. I, I look at the definition of tree in there and I planted a, a dogwood, a flowering dogwood tree in my yard. And the definition of tree is that they grow to a mature height of 12 feet or greater above the ground. I don't think my dogwood's ever gonna get to 12 feet. Uh, it's, you know, it's an understory tree. They, they grow underneath the canopy of other trees. So there, there's some aspects to this that I'm just not sure about that maybe we need to reconsider. But I, I wanna ask on the 50% on the coverage, basically that's your lawn. Anybody's grass area is gonna cover probably 50%. And does that exclude the area where a house is, where sidewalks, driveways are, or is it the entire lot? What, how do we define that 50% coverage? I think as we think about how we implement this in practice, there might be some changes that we want to consider. Yeah. But and, overall, and I, overall, I think it's great. I, I, one more comment in the, in the very beginning, in the goals, it talks about wanting to um, help pollinators, but then in the text of it, I don't see much focus or really any focus on pollinators and making sure that we have flower flowering plants that are also helping pollinators. So yeah, um, I don't want to take observations. Thanks. And I'm happy to talk about these individually too. I don't want to take up all the time. Just a couple of quick things. Uh, one, we didn't decide to tackle the weed ordinance comes from the tree section, right? It, that we revised and we didn't revise the whole tree section, even though the um, model ordinance that we had had a whole section on trees. So I, I think that there's potentially work to be done there. I, I agree with you that, you know, if we're using cultivars of native plants or things like that, that people have worked with, we don't want those kinds of things excluded. The same kind of thing that you're talking about with the trees could be applied to bushes or, or even grasses or things. Um, I, I, I want to say, importantly, we don't have I don't think that this ordinance in any way impacts people that still want to have a lawn of grass that's cut short. That the region that we live in is an overlap of as almost as many native plant species as you can imagine in North America because of where we are in the in the continent. And so you could easily still have a fully grass lawn that's cut to four inches or three inches and is just using many of the native fescues or other things that we have around here. And that would still be considered within 
that would still be considered that you're within the sustainable landscaping goals of this. Those have um, so, but on the other That's hand, helpful. That's helpful. Thank yeah. you. So we want the diversity. Uh, I mean, we want to promote people to grow the kinds of plants and flowers that will support pollinators and things like that. Um, but we, we, I guess we did have some back and forth about how much of that to put in the ordinance itself versus, you know, like the, the rationale behind all these things and what sustainable landscaping does versus what should go in the ordinance proper that would call these things out. But I, I, I'm happy to put more of those in. I think there's a lot of people that like to see that. Thank you. Steve Kramer, SAB. I think most of my uh, question was similar to what Stan was asking. I'm I'm still a little unclear in the 50%, but we can uh, just do some emailing back and forth on that. Uh, and as far as applicability, this is a citywide ordinance for all private, residential, commercial, everything in, in, within city limits, correct? That's correct. And the last question is that the, uh, the part about the uh, percent of um, income tax filing, you know, trying to align the fines with that. Has that gone through city council yet? And is that something that's really, um, is that, does that work? Or do we have the staff to do that? Yeah, that's a really good idea. question. I think we're not aware of the staff. Or the yeah, board. we're waiting on um, the city attorney's office. This, this is a really common thing. And there's been uh, over the last 20 years, quite a lot of papers on how that can increase equity for example, for um, drunk driving fines or speeding tickets or things like that. It's been implemented in a lot of places, but I, you know, talking with uh, Brian Jimenez, who's code enforcement, he was like, well, how would I get that information to implement that? So I, I, it's not clear to me, A, that we can do that legally, like that the city's attorney office can see a way for us to do that. And then B, how do you logistically do that where they could easily get that information? But I do think if we can increase equity in that fine system for people that potentially, for example, can afford to not pay, right, can, can afford not to have a violation uh, versus people that, you know, might be working a couple of jobs and they can't find the time to mow their lawn. And now they get hit with the same fine that somebody that, that you know, might, might not. So I think I appreciate that you guys think that it's a cool idea. Uh, it has been implemented in other municipalities within the United States. But as far as I know, there's not one in Kansas, and I don't think we have anything on the books in uh, for Lawrence. Ben, I'm really interested in hearing if this thing has a way to fly, because this will be the first time I've ever heard of a fine system being equitable in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. So I'm very keen to hear what the outcome is. Hi, everybody. This is Sarah Chenoweth, uh, SAB board member. Um, everything that you said, Ben, sounds awesome. My name is on the subcommittee, but I think I only went to two meetings. Um, but I <laughs> I just wanted to say that my role here, um, I am the liaison to the Douglas County Food Policy Council. And uh, the county is, the Public Works Department is reviewing their own noxious, or I mean, it, uh, vegetation plan, which includes noxious weeds, noxious weeds, that's a hard word to say. Um, and so because of my, you know, sort of position here, I volunteered to be part of that review. Um, and so I think that we actually have a meeting tomorrow with the county 
Public Works Department to just, I, I got a draft of this and I've, I've sort of looked over it, but I just wanted to say, um, I know that you guys have probably spent some time looking at the county plan as well. I know Michael, I think was familiar with that. So if you all have any input or anything that you would like me to take to the, the County Public Works Department about their vegetation management plan, please feel free to, to send me an email um, and I uh, will do that as, as they ask the Food Policy Council to to kind of weigh in on that. Excellent, thank you, Sarah. We're, we're hopeful that alignment of those two things as well will mean that, you know, on one side of the county, the city limit line, there's not this laundry list of plants that are noxious weeds. And then as soon as you move across the line, basically it's only the 11 that the state has. So um, hopefully that can give clarity to homeowners as well. But yeah, I'll, I'll get in touch with you about that, thanks. Does anybody else have any comments? Um, am I supposed to open it up to the public now, Kathy? You may open each item up to the public if um, all the board members are done with their comments and questions. Is everybody done? Yeah. Uh, okay, does anybody from the public have a comment or a question or a concern? Is Michael Ullman still there? Oh, it looks like Michael might have left. No, I just raised my hand. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Michael. That's okay, okay, Kara. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to make a few comments. Um, I, I, I like what I've heard, the, the feedback so far from the board members. Um, as far as different species and food production. Um, if you look down at the very end of the ordinance, there's a section on definitions that includes a really wide array of different types of sustainable, natural, nat naturalistic landscaping, um, which includes uh, permaculture, for example, uh, medicinal plants, um, and as well, we're trying to align the kind of provisions in this ordinance with the existing urban agricultural code, which, you know, is all about food growing. So, you know, we definitely want to have food growing. Personally, I'm interested in this whole ordinance because I am a permaculturist and I've been growing all kinds of non-turf grass species, a wide diversity in permaculture for about 40 years, the first 13 of which I was um, charged and potentially fined by the city for growing weeds. Um, yeah, we wanna have food growing in this definitely, as well as native plants. And to answer Stan's question, just by definition, native plants are attractive for pollinators. Um, another aspect of native plants and, you know, taller plants. Uh, I just read an article in the Guardian about the insect apocalypse. You may have heard of the term that some 50, depending on this, on the the bug species, 50 to 90, 50 to 70 percent of the population 
um, has died off in the last two or three decades. Um, and they will thrive in, in when there's more vegetation. You know, when landscapes are, are manicured and particularly when they're chemical, um, it kills all the insects, which, you know, is kind of the intent of some people who grow a chemical landscape. So that's another reason that the natural landscaping will protect biodiversity of insects and pollinators and whatever. Um, uh, oh, and then in general, we tried to create an ordinance that balance the different kinds of approaches, whether it's closely cropped turf grass landscaping, which we have defined as well, or native landscaping or food growing landscaping, so that the, the existing ordinance is pretty much biased against anything but turf grass, that if it's over 12 inches, it's excessive growth, unless somebody at the city will, in many apparent cases, arbitrarily decide that it's, you know, it's not legitimate for whatever reason and needs to be mowed. Uh, so we want to have a recognition and actually a promotion of other kinds of landscaping, but certainly allowing people to grow turf grass too. And one way we balance that is with the provision that a person has a, as we understand it certainly by law, but constitutional right to grow whatever they want on their property, as long as it's not negatively impacting somebody else's property, like Kay has mentioned, for instance, on occasion, you know, a risk of fire or in the, in the reverse, uh, somebody overspraying and damaging their neighbor for that reason. So we wanna have a balance if we can achieve that, that people can grow what they want as long as the effects are within their property because uh, law says that we have a right to the enjoyment of our, our own property that's enshrined in law in various levels. Uh, so we're hoping that we're achieving that balance. Um, if if you, know, you have any issues concerning that, you know, we'd like to hear that too. So uh, thanks for your feedback, everybody. Thanks, Michael. You always have really good insights. I appreciate your help. Um, does anybody else have any comments from the public? Am I, I'm not missing anybody, am I? No? Uh, okay, so do I, um, guys, I'm sorry, I will get better at this, I promise. Um, do I say that we now move on to the Climate Action Plan subcommittee or do we need to have, what's the, what's the phrasing, what do I say now? This is, this is this is Kathy Richardson, the interim sustainability director. So on um, the noxious weeds ordinance, it was just to receive the update. Um, there was good discussion there. There was no um, action. Uh, so the next item is to receive an update on the climate action plan subcommittee, and that would be with Nancy. Okay, Nancy Muma, sub uh, SAB member. Um, 
So the climate subcommittee met on February 23rd. I understood from the other members of the committee that this was the first time in, in a long time that it had met. Um, we talked about the ordinance that had been written regarding single use bags um, and talked about how with the um, bill that's going through the Kansas um, Senate and House now that we may want to focus on encouraging single use rather than um, focusing on the ordinance until we hear what's resolved at the state level. Um, we also uh, decided we would meet on a monthly basis. So the next time we're going to outline more what we want to achieve uh, over the next um, period of time, since this was the first time the committee had met in a long time. So. Um, Kay Johnson was the other person that was there. I don't know if you want to add anything else to that, Kay. No, but we appreciate, Nancy, that you stepped up and took the leadership for that so that we can get back on track. The, the other thing is that we wanted to establish a link between what is going on with both the city and the county as far as the climate action plan as well as the subcommittee, because there has been significant disconnect, I think. I mean, we've been involved in it at all, really. Okay, so I think that's all we have to report at this point. Okay, thanks, this is Nancy. Oh, sorry, Ben, sorry, go that's ahead. That's okay. This is Ben Sykes, uh, SAB board member. I'm just curious if you guys also talked about the um, Senate Utilities Committee bill, the 353 about wind and solar energy, which seems like it also connects here too. And I think that and the plastic bag ordinance are both uh, at the Senate level in going against home rule and trying to also, I feel like are directed pretty, pretty narrowly at Douglas County and at the city. Um, I don't know if you guys brought that one up as well. Just curious. Oh, we didn't talk about that one. Um, we really focused more on the, the plastic bag issue since that's something that we had talked about specifically um, it, with an ordinance here in Lawrence. And, and just FYI, Wichita is also working on um, a single-use bag ordinance. And so it could be a, a Senate um, bill could be focused on both Lawrence and Wichita efforts to reduce single-use plastics. Um, and the bill is out, passed through the Senate. It's now going to be, um, it's in the House yesterday. No, today there was a hearing in the House. Huh? This, this is Sarah Chen with board member. I'll just add real quick to that. I, I testified today against that bill um, in the House and um, I, I suspect there should be some kind of resolution coming out of the House uh, next week and, and whether sending it on or not. The committee was actually pretty favorable um, to, to our side. So um, anyway, we'll, we'll see. I, I would not hold out hope that that one's going to go away, though. <laughs> Uh, as far as the wind and solar, I actually have been following some of the wind stuff. Um, a lot of the the bad wind bills are dead. There's only really a couple of them left. One of them that has to do with like lighting, um, and and a lot of the solar ones are kind of on pause too. Just FYI. <laughs> Sarah, do you has has the governor said 
has she talked to anybody about what she has? Does she have feelings about this? Has she said what she will do if it passes both? This is Sarah Shannon with board member. It's an election year. I suspect she will not comment. <laughs> yeah, I suspect you're right as well. Does uh, do any other members of the board have any comments about this issue? No, um, okay, I'll open it up to the public then. Does anybody from the public have any comments or questions or concerns? Am I missing? I'm not missing anybody, am I? Not seeing anyone. You're not seeing anyone? Okay. All right, so next on the agenda. Oh God, okay, it's me. All right, so. Uh, let me bring up my thing. I'm going to apologize ahead of time. Um, uh, I have been dealing with an ongoing um, family crisis out of state, so I'm less organized than usual. Um, and uh, and we all know that I'm not a great public speaker, and I, I get that that's stressful for all of us, not just me. So uh, I'm sorry. So um, what I want is for the board to have a discussion and I genuinely mean I want us to have a discussion. I want everybody's input. Um, I, I really do want to hear everybody's insights or criticisms or concerns. Um, I do better with, with a lot of input and I'm sure you guys do too. Um, so I hope this is a discussion, but uh, I think we need to declare uh, a climate emergency declaration. And I think we need to recommend that the city declares one as well. Um, I see this declaration as messaging and policy. Um, we we passed the board passed the uh, Lawrence Green New Deal a while ago, and then the city voted unanimously on it. But then the then mayor changed the name from the Lawrence Green New Deal to Five Steps for Sustainability. Um, and uh, I've been doing kind of informal surveys with city employees and uh, people are not aware of it and the ones who are aware of it it just doesn't really enter into their working day and uh, i feel like a climate emergency declaration would be a really strong messaging and policy that, that would um, get messaging out to the most vulnerable and to those people who are getting bad info or no info um, I work a lot of frontline minimum wage jobs with a lot of disenfranchised people from a really wide spectrum of humanity. And uh, I never shut up about the climate crisis. I talk about it with everybody just because, you know, that's what an activist does. We're kind of obnoxious that way. And uh, people either don't know about the climate crisis or they have uh, bad information or outright misinformation, um, which is its own crisis. And I feel like an emergency declaration will help people by alerting them and it will help them prepare and adapt. Lawrence isn't moving fast enough and we need more members of the public involved in planning and for momentum and support because we are currently on a path of two, probably three degrees Celsius, even if we were to achieve zero carbon emissions tomorrow. Part two of the IPCC report that came out last week is clear that we have a certain amount of hardship baked in now. People need to start adapting and prepping. Climate migration is already underway from coastal and southern states, and people are looking for progressive towns with strong climate action planning 
and scientifically literate leadership. Declaring a climate emergency is the opposite of doomism. It will signal to Lawrence citizens and prospective residents that the city understands the gravity of the crisis, that we are serious people who take this existential crisis seriously. Um, and I, uh, like I said, I genuinely would like input and questions now. So I'm gonna open it up to the board for comments. You seem to have some SAB. Uh, Kira, do we have any kind of uh, precedent or any kind of definition or terminology within the city or county structure that determines what an emergency is defined as? Uh, no, I don't know about that. Does anybody know the answer to that? I, I have a suspicion if we check with legal counsel that there's probably some definitions or terminologies associated with a declaration of emergency that I think before we as a appointed body to an elected city commission, I think we need to be aware of what it means to declare an emergency with or without the climate in front of it. Okay, and so would we talk to the city lawyer about that? How do you recommend we we investigate that? This is I frankly, I'm not sure, but I assume that we've got channels. Uh, Kathy, you probably can address that somewhat because you're well within those circles. Um, how do we go about finding that out? Absolutely. This is Kathy Richardson, the interim sustainability director. So um, Kira, I can help you connect you to the attorney's office and have that conversation just like um, Ben's been connected as well with them for some of his questions. And it might be good if other board members have have questions like this that, um, you know, or information that needs to be gathered to be brought back to this um, advisory board for consideration. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really great question. Thank you. Does anybody else have any comments? Uh, Nancy Muma, SAP member. Um, my comment is, you know, we can declare an emergency or some kind of notification of, of the issue, but without any concrete actions um, that we're recommending, I don't know, just saying there's a problem, I don't think is going to be a big step forward in trying to solve the problem. So I'd rather see some actions suggested, some some something um, to further cause changes, not just declaring an emergency. With uh, are you saying? I'm sorry, I'm writing this down. You're saying that you would like to have actions suggested along with the declaration, or instead of the declaration. Uh, along with it. So the idea would be, you know, th there is a huge problem here. These are some concrete steps that, that the city could take to mitigate this issue, or um, we need to do education of the public about these issues and how they can deal, you know, take concrete steps, do something positive to help mitigate it rather than just saying it's an emergency. Do something to solve the problem, not just declare there is one. 
Yeah, that I, this is a really good idea. I really like that suggestion a lot. Thank you. Um, I, I will reiterate that um, the people I work with are profoundly and chronically disenfranchised and some of them don't have Wi-Fi. Many of them don't have smartphones. Um, many of them, the information they get is from either local TV or Fox channels, like in the break room. Um, when I talk to people about it, a lot of them think that it's a hoax because they have, have uh, they've absorbed bad information. Um, so I, uh, how do I say this? I feel like uh, in the past and even right now, there's kind of a tendency among career environmentalists to um, inadvertently kind of focus the messaging so that it's palatable to other environmentalists or to people in professional circles. Um, and I, one of the reasons I do want to do this declaration is because it, it's a good way, a good strong way of reaching through the noise, cutting through the noise and getting uh, education and messaging out to these people who, again, um, either have bad media diets or completely just absent media diets. Um, and, uh, and then the few that who have heard of it um, are really struggling with a lot of misinformation and disinformation. And there are a lot of active bad actors who are getting bad information out to other people. So I, uh, to me, as an activist, this makes sense, this kind of messaging um, uh, to help build momentum. So I just wanted to reiterate that, that this is the approach I'm taking, um, is that of an activist where I'm trying to get a lot of messaging out to a lot of different people. And it seems like a really big, strong, clear message that also can act as policy. But I really do like your, your uh, input. Does, um, did you have a comment, Ben? Um, yeah, I think mine is relatively short. I would say that um, when I just Google emergency declarations, those are obviously been very popular and very divisive over the last two years. Uh, but I, I would guess that there's been a lot of work done on honing those for exactly what they mean. Uh, the ones I'm talking about are all the emergency health declarations, right? So limitations of gatherings to less than 100 people and mask mandates and all of those things. As far as I understand it, those were all emergency declarations. So to, to Steve's point about what does that mean when we do it and, and how do you write those in a way that's that's legally uh, legitimate and, and also can can do the kind of active things that I think Nancy's talking about. I think there's probably a huge host of recent examples of that on a completely different topic, right? But I think you could probably use the challenges to that to and how those are formed to, to hone this in a way that could make it really effective. That's a really good point. Um, and I, I would also hope that everybody remembers that uh, all of the failures we've had with COVID messaging and pandemic messaging, these are the same issues and failures that we are having and are going to have with uh, with the climate emergency. So we do know that we need to get out 
ahead of it. We do know that we do need to do it. Uh, if not this, then something else. We, I hope that this board will remember that messaging is a really, really important part of policy recommendations and of all the projects we're working on. Um, and again, stuff that maybe seems really obvious to you guys, it, it's not so obvious again to like, you know, most of the people I work with. So we don't need to make all the same mistakes that were made uh, with COVID. You know, we, we know where our weak spots are. We know what we need to work on. That's a really good point, Ben. Does anybody else have it? Sarah, did you have any ideas or comments? Sorry to call you out. <laughs> Nancy, no, you already spoke, Nancy. Stephen, you had a lot of uh, opinions yesterday during our phone call. Do you have anything you'd like to say? Did you say Stephen? Stanley. Sorry, I'm not in my I'm I'm not in my own home. I have to wear a mask. I'm I'm at a different house right now. Yeah, I had my hand raised. I I, I was curious. How do you envision a a declaration, an emergency declaration, uh, educating and informing? the people that you're talking about who not informed and educated? Uh, I think just by just saying that there's an emergency, like if we had an official emergency declared by the city, if we maybe had it on the website, if maybe some of the newspapers covered it, I, I'm hoping it would be a way of getting information across to people who maybe wouldn't have it. Is that what you meant? Yeah, I'm, I'm, this is Stan Rasmussen, SAB member. I was just trying to figure out how you intended to use it. You, because you were talking about you need to educate. I'm not sure a declaration is going to do much that way. And then are you thinking that you want to ask the city commission to declare an emergency yes. or just this board or what what's your yes. plan i i would like the board to declare an emergency and i would like us to recommend that the city declares one as well i i think there are the few people who's who have heard of the climate crisis uh will say things like oh well we're just going to recycle or we'll you know get electric cars or whatever, they they don't understand the width and the depth and the gravity of, of the crisis. And uh, uh, I feel like the first step of an emergency is to treat it like an emergency, which means calling it an emergency. So I feel like just the declaration in and of itself would be educational for a lot of people. Did that, answer, you. Did that answer your question, Stephen? I mean, excuse Stanley. me. Stanley. Yes, thank you. Does anybody else on the board have any input? Kay, Kay has her hand raised. Okay. Oh, there you are. Kay? Hi. Um, Kay Johnson, SAB board member. Douglas County serves as the emergency coordinator for the county, and they generally are the ones that declare emergencies. I think you need to look at state law and how that interacts. The city of Lawrence sits on the emergency management committee, but I think that 
this is a legal interpretation that Stephen mentioned. That's a really good point. Thanks, Kate. Um, how would you suggest we would navigate that with the county? Does anybody have any ideas of how we would how we would navigate this with Douglas County? I guess, sorry, this has been Sykes Sad Board member again. I, I would say that the precedent for how Douglas County and the city of Lawrence work together on the emergency declaration for health is probably a good example of how those things could could work um, when when they're coordinated or when they need to feedback off of each other. Um, I'm gonna send you a link. Here I was just looking as well. You were talking about learning from examples. Mm -hmm. Kansas City in November also passed an emergency uh, resolution for uh, declaring a climate emergency. And so there would probably be a lot of value in understanding, you know, we're five months out from that one. And so that's a local, a nearby municipality, like what, what did that entail? Were there details about what that means? And then in the five months since that, how has that been effective or not effective? And if we were to do one here, how could we kind of learn from that experience? So I'll, I'll send you the link that I just found a news story on it. It's Googling. Awesome, thanks man. And this, this is Stan Rasmussen, SAB member. Douglas County has a local emergency planning committee that's responsible for developing emergency plans to prepare for and respond to emergencies within the community. So it, it might be that there may there may need to be coordination with them. I don't know. This is Sarah Chenoweth, with board member. I I think I'll echo what someone else said. And I think a good first step is uh, talking to our own city attorney, and maybe they can help guide in those those next steps. That's a good thought. Thank you. These are, these are, this is all really good input. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, before I open it up to the public, does anybody have any uh, other comments? This is Steve Kramer, SAB. Um, I think to coin a phrase of the uh, stand and be counted among the cities that agree that the uh, climate crisis is real. I think that's a great thing. I think for education of people within our community, there needs to be something more definitive and something that we can educate on a more detailed level. Uh, for instance, you know, you often hear about the 30-second elevator speech, trying to define uh, something that somebody needs to get their arms around. I think this is one such case and the, the climate crisis trying to define that to somebody, they've been hearing this in the news quite a lot. And as you said, there's a lot of varying opinions and to declare that we believe in the climate crisis, I think is, is a great thing to stand and be counted. But I really think the education aspect of this really needs to come about from us prioritizing what we need to dive in the most and what we have the greatest chance to uh, pick is, I won't call it low hanging fruit because if we can find the right grant money, we might be able to accomplish some very large uh, goals and accomplishments. 
And we really need to be educating on those specific action plans and how it affects our community and how people can be involved. Um, to say it's a climate crisis, I think for a lot of people is still too vague. And so again, I agree, stand and be counted. But I think for the education purposes, we need to get a real strong focus on this SAB and really get an action plan that makes sense and really tackles the things that we can tackle and change and improve. And that's where a lot of the education really needs to, to flow. That's my thoughts. That's a really good point. You um, you guys all have really good input. I really do appreciate that. Um, I, I will just, I'll, I'll just reiterate it again. Um, you guys all work in professional circles with other professional people. Um, and one of the things that a lot of environmentalists, and I know a lot of city planners are always concerned about is reaching people who are hard to reach. Um, and so um, I do want to emphasize how seriously uneducated, that's not the right word, how seriously, um, how seriously uninformed uh, many, many disenfranchised people are. And again, the ones who do have some information have a lot of bad uh, information, a lot of mis or disinformation. And we we don't have all the time in the world because there are people with alternative agendas who are actively messaging these people, actively doing outreach, actively doing movement building. Um, I, I know we're all aware of, of how seriously dysfunctional a lot of governments are from municipal governments to state governments to county. Um, there's a lot of dysfunction and strife and uh, I feel like it would be really good to make just a clear statement that we all understand this crisis, we all understand the depth of it um, and that we are going to work that, that we are aware that we're running out of time and the way we need to work with a lot of urgency uh, because it's just like COVID. The, the people who are the most disenfranchised who have been hit the hardest are already being hurt by the climate crisis and, and will continue to be. So I hope that we'll keep the disenfranchised people in, in mind when we're, when we're talking about this and uh, when we're thinking about the timing of it, but I really do appreciate your input. These are all really great comments. Um, if nobody on the board has any more comments, I'll, I'd like to open it up to the public. Looks like no other comments. Okay, can I open up comments to the public, please? Uh, can I call on Maddie, please? Hi, um, I'm Maddie. I use they them pronouns. I'm a resident of Lawrence. Um, I'm generally in favor of declaring a climate emergency um, because we are, we, you know, it is an emergency. Um, I, I think I kind of want to second what a lot of the board members have been talking about is having kind of like actionable items and clear definitions of what that would be, um, which will, I mean, probably part of that is like covered by the legal requirements anyway, but um, just from the experience of like trying to get the city commission to 
like pass a green new deal uh even though it wasn't passed by name it like it's kind of like nothing has really happened with that um at least like in a in a very visible way um and it sounds like from Kira's conversations with city employees that it hasn't been integrated into um city uh actions or like policy making um so i would really like to see the de declaration of an emergency have the kind of like oomph and planning and uh definition that it needs to not just kind of be like an empty declaration um i really hope i'm not cutting out because i think my video is frozen but um uh for example the governor uh has recently signed a declaration to recognize trans day of visibility and that includes like because trans people are affected by discrimination in the workplace in their lives because trans youth are disproportionately affected by homelessness and uh, suicide rates like that sort of stuff that's why we need a trans day of visibility so i think something like that would also be good to include in an in emergency declaration like whereas there is a climate crisis and there are climate refugees and people are already being affected and the disenfranchised members of our community will be affected and are being affected disproportionately a climate crisis or a climate emergency is needed to be declared because like we're just not moving fast enough um so those those are my comments but i'm very excited to see where this could go thanks thanks maddie that was really well spoken uh does anybody else have any comments from the oh sorry there you are Okay, Michael, can you, hi, Michael. Uh, hi, yeah, this is Michael Allman. Um, first of all, thank you, Kira. I know you've brought this before the board and, and the public before. I've seen it many times in your emails. So thank you. Um, I, if, if anybody was aware of the sixth assessment report from the United Nations last week that got lost in the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and got lost in the president's State of the Union address. I mean, I, it should have been top headlines for everybody in every newspaper, but it wasn't. Um, but it's dire. I mean, the, the Secretary General saying delay is death. I mean, this is really serious. We can't deny it except that many people are denying it or are ignorant about it uh, because the media is not covering it. Um, and we're, you know, humans are pretty much hardwired uh, to block out uh, information that's, that's worrisome. I mean, we just don't like to hear it, so we block it out. I mean, it's, it's a fact, it's a psychological fact. Um, I say as far as declaring an emergency, what that accomplishes, like Maddie pointed out and like Kira's pointed out, uh, it raises the awareness. We need to raise the awareness. And so it'll do that. It also means that the city commission, if they declare it, it raises their level of commitment. And we're theoretically working on a climate uh, action and, uh, and uh, adaption plan well, I mean, when was it the Sustainability Advisory Board initially brought that up? It's been 
two, three years, and we still haven't gotten this action plan and the emergency gets worse and worse. So what the, we would want the city commission to, to do to answer um, board member Muma's uh, very valid point, you know, what action can they take? Well, let's get this climate action plan done. You know, it, it's like, you know, they're slow walking it just so they can um, keep keep all their their ducks in a row. Right now, they're they're getting a consultant and they're having community people go out to uh, talk to neighborhoods, and that's all good and fine. But you know, I mean, how much of that data gathering do we need? We don't need any more information. We know it's a problem. Let's just get the plan done. Let's hire a consultant. I mean, spend twenty thousand dollars. Get the plan done in six months. Get it done. That's what we should be doing. That's what the city commission did. But in addition, every year, and I've pointed this out at the SAB before, the city goes through their budget and they spend millions of dollars on all kinds of vehicles and infrastructure, pumps, lighting, all of that should be spending money on things that'll cut energy use particularly transportation. Transportation is the, uh, the largest sector of climate emissions in the United States. The city should be buying all electric vehicles. I mean, duh, it's a no brainer. So they should be doing that kind of stuff right now as they prepare their budget. There are any number of things they can be doing. They just need to do it, to do it and do it now because <laughs> it's an emergency. <laughs> So that's my two cents. So thank you very much, Kira, for bringing it up and for the board for uh, for initiating the climate plan in the first place. Thanks, that, Michael. I really appreciate your support. You've been supportive for a long time, and I really appreciate that. Um, does any are there any other members of the public who have a comment? It looks like maybe Maddie and Michael were the only ones here. Um, okay. All right. I do appreciate the discussion, guys. Um, I know it's it's not everybody's favorite subject, and I know uh, there's some board members who get uncomfortable when I when I talk about you know all my different like horrible jobs. But um, I uh, I feel like it gives me really important insights into a certain percent of the population. That uh, that again, it's, it can be a really tricky demographic to read, and um, and uh, so I I do think uh, I do think it's important to remember that we do need to care about messaging and movement building. Um, I hope we remember that um, the top climate scientists in the world who worked on the IPCC report have said, like Michael said, we know what we need to do, all we're lacking is is uh, public momentum and willpower, and that it's really important right now for all of us to be activists. And uh, I will say, as an activist, I, I know that's easier said than done. It's a pain in the butt being an activist. It can be really obnoxious, and it can be really hard. You get all kinds of threats. People don't love it, but it, it is something that we all need to 
think about doing right now with this crisis is to be an activist and think about messaging and think about ways that we can bring in as many members of the public to help us with our work as possible. Um, so now, uh, if nobody has any more comments, um, what do we move on to? Oh, staff report. Is that right, Kathy? We move on to staff report? That's correct. So this is Kathy Richardson, the interim sustainability director. The under staff reports, the first item is to receive an update on the stormwater program and consider a citizens advisory committee role. And Caitlin Dix is here to give that presentation. Good evening. Caitlin Dix, Environmental Manager for Municipal Services and Operations. So again, just here to give a quick little overview of our storm sewer permit. So we have a separate storm sewer system in the city of Lawrence. Uh, so our permit is a five-year permit. Um, so basically all stormwater eventually enters the river. Along the way, it's gonna flow through our curbs, storm drains, pipes, into our ditches and streams. Um, and we have a permit under the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System to operate that storm sewer. Um, with that, one of our requirements is a stormwater management plan. Our stormwater management plan was revised in two, 2021 and is um, applicable to, through 2024. Oh, I have a presentation. Um, so how do, am I sharing, sharing my screen? Yeah, share screen. screen. Okay. Okay. Sharing my screen. Does everything look okay? Looks good. Thank you. Uh, so part of that, one of the minimum control measures is uh, public participation. So one of the best practices available in the permit issued by the Kansas Department of Health and Environment is hosting a citizens advisory committee. Currently, our stormwater management plan does not include plans to host a citizen advisory committee, meaning that when we made our management plan for 2019 to 2024, it wasn't one of the activities that we had planned to do. Um, however, I'm so I'm new to the city. I started in past November and I did hear some indications from other staff that their potentially sustainability advisory board may have kind of served in this role in the past. So our, um, again, the implement activities are already planned through 2024. Um, but I wanted to go over what that means, you know, and kind of cover, uh, see if that if sustainability advisory board is interested in serving in that role in future. So that means host the the city hosts the city the citizens advisory committee meetings twice yearly and receives comments and guidance from the committee regarding the stormwater management plan. So what we're required to do is retain all files on copy of the attendance list and minutes of the meeting, which you already do. You must hold at least two meetings in the year um, in which we would claim points on our stormwater management plan. And we can claim three points for each year that we implement that best practice. 
just for reference, this is from um, kind of a brief overview of our 2021 stormwater management plan annual report. So there's a, a, a point system. So you can see the column on the left is a uh, the minimum points required under our permit. Uh, and the second column is the points that we have planned in our management plan. Um, and then the final was what we earned for 2021. So you can see we did not achieve as many points as we planned for some minimum control measures, and we achieved more points than we planned for others. Uh, so again, this will kind of fluctuate from year to year. Uh, we, we do try to stay as closely to that management plan, but certainly priority like there's opportunities that come up um, and you know we we welcome we welcome those opportunities so again you can find out more about the stormwater program and the stormwater management plan uh, at the city of lawrence website i've posted the link and i've added my contact information below so thank you all for having me here this evening and just briefly listening about the stormwater management plan. And uh, I do encourage you all, if you have an opportunity beyond just the consideration of the citizen advisory board, um, but looking into all of that second, the second section is uh, dedicated to public participation. So I think that you could potentially find some um, alignment with some of your existing projects and programs. Thank you, Caitlin. I appreciate you taking the, the time, especially at this time of night. We, we appreciate your help. Um, do I, Kathy, do I open this up for conversation? Yes. Um, okay, Do the does the board have any comments? I have a couple of questions. This is Steve Kramer, SAB. Um, Caitlin, apart from the, uh, I'm not sure if the points earned, uh, does that get you frequent flyer hotels or anything like that? Uh, uh, first no, it is again, uh, we map out a plan to meet the minimum points um, that are required in our permit. So that's in order to uh, retain the permit? It To stay compliant with uh, with our permit requirements, yes, to stay in, in compliance with clean water law. In, in order to kind of evaluate whether or not we could be the Citizens Advisory Board, could you just give us a quick 30 second rundown on the top two or three issues that you think you're struggling with or that are the, the biggest issues to tackle with this? I, I certainly welcome an opportunity to discuss the plan further in future. I think at this point I was just willing and ready to present kind of that basic overview of the best practice of a citizen's advisory board um, and allow you all an opportunity to consider that. Um, and then again, gather your questions um, and bring them back to us. So I'll, I'll, I'll certainly write as many questions down as you all have um, and welcome an invitation back to answer those questions. Uh, Stanley, it looks like you've got a question. Yes, thank you. This is Stan Rasmussen, SAB member. I, I think it would be good for the SAB to assist with this uh, Citizens Advisory Board and help facilitate that for our stormwater permit. Um, and I would be I would be interested in volunteering to assist with that. But I, I think it would be a service to the city that this board could perform. So I, I would encourage you know, one or two other people to consider assisting with that. But I, I think it's something that we should do. 
Thank you. This is Kathy Richardson, the Interim Sustainability Director. Um, Caitlin, you might want to uh, clarify, are you wanting a, a smaller group of uh, the Sustainability Advisory Board members or you were considering the full board as that um, advisory committee? Uh, I consider that to be a decision that would be within the sustainability advisory board. Um, and certainly, obviously, looking at your bylaws, um, the questions are, you know, is that can you can you serve within that function? Does that fit within your own your own bylaws um, and your own goals? Um, I really, this is an invitation to review and take maybe take a deeper look at the stormwater management plan. Um, request some of that specific information that you might like further questions that you might have um, uh, and, and really just starting the conversation. And one more follow-up question. This is Kathy Richardson, Interim Sustainability Director. So are there some minimum requirements for that committee? Like can it be a, a two-person committee um, and that suffices or, or how does that work? Um, so again, the the information that is included in our permit is the Citizens Advisory Committee must hold at least two meetings in the year in which points are claimed. And that you must, again, host the Citizens Advisory Committee twice yearly, receive comments and guidance from the committee regarding the stormwater management plan, and retain on file copies of the attendance list and meetings of minutes of the meeting. This is Ben Sykes, SAB board member. So maybe just an important element then in what you've got there, Caitlin, to differentiate whether it could be a subcommittee or a smaller group, at least in my experience, which is short on SAB subcommittees, we're usually not keeping the minutes of those meetings. We may write up a summary or something like that um, if, if we're spreading it around, but compared to kind of the Open Records Act uh, meeting minutes that come up as part of the standard SAB. Those are kind of cooked in. So that may be an important differentiating point on whether or not it can be a subcommittee or a subgroup of us versus the whole. Um, I, I did have a question um, as well. I, I'm definitely in support of it, as Stan said. I, I think it could be a great service. I, I'm curious if whether or not the meetings that we would have would have to be solely focused on stormwater management or could they be, you know, for example, we had talked on email, can we have a discussion about how landscaping ordinances in the development code connect with the stormwater management plan and would that suffice as one of these two meetings for the permit? Um, or does it need to be like, let's just talk about the plan. That's what our meeting's about kind of, do you have any clue? Um, I can potentially follow up on that and, and we could potentially even reach, reach out to Kansas Department of Health and Environment, but I, but my understanding would be yes, as long as, as, as long as the stormwater management plan is, is reviewed, commented on, and, and in some way a part of the meeting and you guys are providing, providing that guidance and participation. Again, we're, we're really looking for that public participation in the stormwater management plan. Steve Kramer, SAB. Uh, from everything I'm hearing here and the word citizen advisory committee, our bylaws require us within our SAB uh, when we have a quorum to be taking minutes and to also be open to the public. I would think the intent here is to have a similar type uh, forum. 
the subcommittees are really to provide um, more detailed guidance, uh, recommendations, and stuff back to the SAB in order to provide that to the city commission. So I would think a subcommittee would not satisfy the intent here, uh, but it might be very helpful to try and define what the two meetings of the year would be about and what might be best you know, put forth as far as an advisory board goes. Um, it just seems like the intent here is to make sure that there's a chance for citizens to respond to a plan and have some input. So I would think it would have to be the SAB itself for the two meetings. A subcommittee could help set that up. Oh, Stanley. Sorry, sorry, Stanley. Sorry. Sorry, Caitlin. Thank you. Sorry. This is Stan Rasmus, an SAB member. So uh, a couple of comments. One, when I served on the Planning Commission, the Planning Commission had the ability to assign members, nominate and approve members to serve on other committees. So for example, when I was on the Planning Commission, I, Commission, I served on the Metropolitan Planning Organization, which is a transportation organization in order to get transportation dollars from KDOT and Department of Transportation. And I think this would be similar. This is a an EPA slash KDHE requirement associated with your municipal separate storm sewer system permit, your MS4 permit. And it really just says, if I'm you can tell me if I'm wrong. It, it says if you, if a community has this citizens advisory committee, then you can get additional points associated with your permit. And I would think that this board would be free to assign one, two, three people to serve on the committee. There may be other people from the community that also serve on that committee, but it has to be an organized committee that discusses the stormwater management plan at least twice a year. It could talk about other topics, but then it would facilitate the city's compliance with their MS4 permit. Am I, am I so, correct on that? Um, Caitlin Dix, environmental manager. Um, again, just yeah. want to clarify, it is uh, a best practice within the stormwater management plan um, in terms of it not necessarily being directly required, it, it being an option within a menu of options. Um, we certainly strive to achieve as many as we possibly can, of course, to try to do the best you know that we can. But it currently, as I, I do want to say that it is not currently a part of our plan through 2024. Um, so it's, it's not, I just want to clarify, it isn't a requirement at this time. So uh, this is Stan Rasmussen again. Since it's a best management practice, it's part of your stormwater management plan for the city. I would think the city could say the in the stormwater management plan, you could say we have a citizens advisory committee that's made up of two members of the sustainability advisory board, one member of the I don't know, the construction manufacturing or the construction representatives in the city and one other member. And, and I would think you can create this advisory committee in your stormwater management plan. And 
I think that there is a willingness on the part of at least a few of us members to serve on that committee. So again, Caitlin Dix, environmental manager, um, just a point of clarity, it is it is not in our stormwater management plan. Um, we did not plan right, I'm saying, to- I'm so, thinking you could add it, right? it, Yeah, in terms of the 2024, uh, when we revise our stormwater management plan, um, it it could could be it could be an option. Um, again, there we welcome opportunities um, to to take actions that are not part of our stormwater management plan, if and when they are opportunistic. Um, and again, there's there are there is a suite of there's quite a few um, activities within public participation um, that certainly welcome you all to to take a, I encourage you to take a look at the public participation aspects of the stormwater management plan. And can you modify the stormwater management plan, amend it before 2024? Do you have to wait until 2024 to create an advisory committee in the plan? Uh, again, there's no plan to create an advisory committee. Sorry, Caitlin Dix, environmental manager. Um, tech, yes, technically you could, you could um, make an update to your stormwater management plan. We would then need to send resubmit to the Kansas Department of Health and Environment um, and go through that stormwater management plan review process again. Um, I would I would again say that oh, I don't think we don't currently have any intention of revising that plan. Um, again, we do welcome uh, if we can achieve more best practices than we planned, we will we will try to. It's, and again, we can set up, like I'm more than welcome to come back and maybe present more on the stormwater management plan. Really just wanted to kind of uh, put this idea out in front of you all. Maybe you can take some opportunity to discuss it more um, and bring those list of questions. Nancy, did you have a comment for Caitlin? I was just going to say, you know, you're talking about having us as a committee or some group of us within the committee, and you can do that without changing the plan. All you need to do is to set up this committee and, and meet with them twice a year, as you have described, right? So there's no reason why we couldn't have a couple of volunteers from this committee and some other volunteers to set up this committee that, that you're talking about, correct? I, I believe that's correct, but again, I, I welcome you guys to to maybe look at your current bylaws, look at your policies and see, you know, do you think this is a role that is a good fit for you and your committee? I wasn't suggesting that our committee as a whole do it. What I was suggesting is that there may be a few people who would volunteer from this committee to form the committee that, that you're talking about. Certainly welcome all ideas. Sorry, Caitlin Dix, environmental manager. I, I Yes, I appreciate this is a, again, what we what we hope to hear from you. Are there any more board members who have a comment? I'll volunteer to help with the subcommittee if that's what we want to do. This is Kate Johnson, SAB board member. Okay, thanks. Um, I, I think we probably need to have a little bit more discussion among the board before. Actually, I don't know. What what do you guys think? Do you think we need more discussion before anybody volunteers? 
can you can you guys hear me? Any any more discussion that we need to have before anybody volunteers? Nancy? I would just suggest that it's not a, a, a topic that we deal with with the entire board because there's so much more um think so many more things that we directly need to deal with, um, such as the climate emergency that, that Kira is talking about and issues we want to do to mitigate the climate emergency rather than just focusing on the stormwater. So if there's some a subgroup of individuals who would like to deal with it, I think that's great, but I would I would prefer that the board not deal with it in general with the large board and take up the, the limited amount of time we have to work. Does anybody have any response to that or uh, any more concerns or, or uh, looks like you've got a comment, Stanley? No, no comment? No, I um, my hand was in. Oh, sorry. sorry. Um, I, uh, does it, do we, I, I think we should, uh, I mean, again, I'm totally open to everybody's comments, but I think we should maybe, uh, schedule some time to talk about this in a, in another meeting so we can let Caitlin go because it's getting late. Um, is that okay if I suggest that? Yeah. Awesome. Okay, we really, we really- Caitlin Dix, environmental manager. Thank you so much for having me this evening. Um, again, very, very, very excited to be here and, and look forward to working with you in future in any capacity. So thank you. Are you taking public comment? Oh, Michael, I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, Michael. Thank you. Thank you, Michael Allman. Um, if Ms. Dix would would agree. I, I just have a couple of questions that maybe she could answer. Um, the, the neighborhood I'm in is Brook Creek and a couple of weeks ago, Stormwater Division sent a crew in there to clear a bunch of logs out of the Burroughs Creek. But in the process, they also cleaned out a truck, a dump truck full of trash, a whole lot of which was plastic. Um, plastic of which we all know is on its way to the ocean. Um, so my question is, the, well, two questions, I guess, actually. Is, is the stormwater system, is it set up with anywhere in the system that there are strainers that capture some of that plastic or does it all, once it goes into a storm sewer in a street, does it all go right to the river? And then my second question is, the street sweepers, as I understand, are part of the stormwater division to keep plastic and any other trash from going into the sewers. And I'm wondering how many street sweepers you have doing that. So those are my two questions. Thanks. Caitlin Dix, environmental manager. Thank you so much for your questions. Um, I will, again, uh, both those departments that you're discussing are part of the municipal services and operations. Um, certainly can, if that is something that's of, of interest to the advisory board in terms of like the makeup of our storm sewer system, um, you know, in terms of what type of grates we utilize, um, as well as the street sweeping question, that's, that's a type of data question that I would want to not just 
um, I would want to go, I'm, I would like to check my sources and provide a better uh, solid answer. But if that is the type of information that you want, um, that is something that we can we can look up and get. I, Caitlin Dixon, environmental manager. I, I apologize, Michael, for not uh, answering your question directly. And again, would welcome the opportunity to, to follow up with some um, better answers. Quite all right. I appreciate you looking into it. Are there any other members of the public who have any comments? I'm not missing anyone, am I? No, you're not. Okay, I I uh, I suggest we let Caitlin go because it's been a heck of a week and it's been a long night. Um, we really appreciate your patience and your input and uh, everything you're doing for us. Thanks so much. Have a good night. Um, okay, and then I think it's um, time for Kathy's report. This is Kathy Richardson, the Interim Sustainability Director. So the next item on the agenda is to receive the March Sustainability Staff Report. Um, I will say that was attached to the agenda and the content for this report was provided by Kim Kreiner Ritchie. Uh, she is the Douglas County Interim Sustainability Director. So I really appreciate her summarizing some of these um, projects and programs that were of question at last month's meeting. So um, there's a summary there on some open space um, project, the common grounds, uh, solar regulations. That was a question last month. Um, also the climate action plan, there's an update there. Uh, rural recycling had some activity with a shutdown of one of the drop-off locations. Um, an e-waste recycling event that is happening in, on April um, 2nd, that's a Saturday. And then information on the food waste pilot program and then um, just a social media plug there. Um, she did say that uh, she welcomes um, any questions. Um, uh, like I said at last month's meeting, if, if we want to have a presentation uh, from her on um, the climate action plan or anything like that, um, she is happy to, to attend. Again, she doesn't attend all these uh, meetings, but uh, could come with that information. And then also based on some of the information from this meeting and some of the discussion, um, I would like to uh, maybe next month provide some uh, detailed updates on uh, some of the city actions regarding uh, our environmental sustainability uh, commitments as it applies to the strategic plan, which um, does cover um, some of the conversation about uh, the fleet vehicles and conversion to electric and so forth. Uh, so, um, and also the, the city's commitment to uh, achieve the 100% renewable energy by 2035. So I do wanna, uh, provide some detailed um, information as to the work that is being done uh, since it seemed like some of it was of question. And I do also know that um, the subcommittee, the Climate Action Plan um, led by Nancy now, and thanks Nancy for getting that uh, back up um, and active, um, also had a lot of good discussion and questions as to uh, you know where we are with that um, Climate Action Plan. And actually there's a regional um, 
climate action plan as well that Douglas County is part of. That's the Kansas City uh, Regional Action uh, Climate Action Plan. So I didn't want to read through all of this uh, information. Um, if there are any questions um, that I can answer, or like I said, Kim is available and happy to be part of the conversation as well. Nancy? Yeah, Nancy Vermont, um, SAB. I think it'd be great to have her come and talk about the plans and what's been accomplished. I think both of those are really good suggestions for our next meeting, and I'd like to hear what's going on. Absolutely. Stanley? I'd like to see the SAB be involved with the open space uh, planning that might go on in the county. I think that's going to be very important, something I'm very interested in. And then the other the other thing is, is um, Kira and I are going to meet here in the next few weeks to kind of, you know, not, not permanently, but draft out some of the topics for future meetings as we go forward this year. So if you all would send us ideas of things that you'd like to hear about and talk about, We'd greatly appreciate that. And copy Kathy on that, please. This is Kathy Richardson, the Interim Sustainability Director. Um, Stan, um, yeah, you just went on with the next item, which is that future agendas item. And thank you for that reminder um, as we continue to build that work um, and the, the topic of focus for the rest of the year. Hi, this is Kate Johnson. <laughs> I keep trying to figure out how to do this without being on camera. This is very weird to me. Um, so I am confused. I thought the city of Lawrence also joined the Climate Action KC. So to hear you say that Douglas County is a member of Climate Action KC, uh, I know I'm just seems certain that the city commission approved an ordinance that allowed the city of Lawrence to be a member of Climate Action KC. And as we speak, there's an update going on right now, but um, but this, this is gonna be really confusing to me with Douglas County doing part of this, the city of Lawrence doing part of this. I think it needs to be real clear what is the city of Lawrence doing because we represent the city commission and provide input. I mean, we can also provide input to the county, but this now the way it's been split, this is strictly a Lawrence Sustainability Advisory Board. And I would like to find out if I believe the city of Lawrence is the member of the Climate Action KC. This is Kathy Richardson, Interim Sustainability Director. Just to clear that up, my comment of Douglas County being part of the Regional Climate Action Plan is as as a totality, the whole county is considered as part of that action plan. That includes the city of Lawrence. Um, I do wanna also do a, a time check. Um, it is 7-19 um, and I do know there's another advisory board um, that is um, going to be meeting here pretty soon. So um, any other questions, uh, please email me and I will follow up um, on those. 
Kira? Um, do I, uh, I ask for personal, what do I ask for again? Any personal items, any personal updates from anybody? Yes, the next agenda item is any member updates, if somebody has something quick. And then the um, following agenda item is public comment. Okay, does anybody have any personal items? No? Okay, uh, does any, is there any comment from the public? No? Okay, I appreciate your patience, everybody. Hopefully the next one won't be as bad. I'll be like a little bit better. Hopefully, um, I know it's been a, a hard week for everybody. So I hope everybody's uh, hanging in there and uh, practicing self care. And I appreciate your comments and your discussion. And um, I appreciate the work that everybody's doing. So um, do I conclude the meeting? Do I ask for how do I do that again? I can't remember. Yes, ask for a, a motion to adjourn the meeting. Oh, that's right. Kramer, uh, SAB, I move we adjourn. Second. Thanks, Stephen. Second. Thanks, Nancy. All right. Have a good night, everybody. Take care. Bye.